I'm sure that we're all familiar with the ideas of light refraction and light reflection. We, we understand these concepts, even if we don't know the words. We, we see reflection every time that we look at ourselves in the mirror. Light bounces off of us. It goes to the mirror, hits the mirror, it bounces back, comes to our eyes. That's reflection. We, we understand that. We use that all the time in our lives. We understand the idea of reflection. When, when you look at my face, for example, if you look closely at me from on front and you look at my eyes or the edge of my face through my glasses, you'll see it's distorted. That's because light is bent as it goes through the lenses of my glasses. That's refraction. So these are things that, that we deal with all the time in, in life, how light is reflected and refracted. Several years ago, I taught a high school physics class through a section that dealt with these concepts. And I was teaching them how to calculate the angles that light would be reflected at and refracted at and when it hit a mirror or went past through a lens of some kind or a substance. I, I had them do a lot of labs so they would get familiar with how this principle works and, and the calculation that was required. And then I gave them a final project for the section. It, it was a group project. We had a number of lab tables, so I covered all the lab tables with paper and broke them in groups, a group to each table. And on one edge of the table, near a corner, I drew a line with an arrow. That, that line represented the, the direction and the place that I would lay down a laser beam when they were ready to be graded. And then near that line, but kind of behind it on the side of the, the table, I taped a, a paper target standing up. I gave them one mirror and a couple lenses, and they're objective as a, as a group was to figure out where they could place these objects at least two feet out on the table so that when I laid the laser down, it would come back, go through each lens and the, the mirror and strike the target. And they could spend as much time calculating as they wanted. They could figure out moving stuff around however they wanted and their grade would be how they did hitting the target that was on that paper. If they hit the paper itself, they got passing grades. So it wasn't, you know, outlandish, but, but they, the more they got into the target on the paper, the better their grade would be. And they spent a lot of time working on it, drawing on the paper. That's why I covered it, so they could draw their angles and things and, and put their objects in place. But there was still a lot of tension, a lot of nerves when it came time for me to put the laser beam down on that line to see what would happen. I remember watching them as, as those nerves hit because they didn't know for sure what would happen. Most of the teams did well, but there was one team that their beam went the wrong direction entirely. They, they totally missed, weren't even coming back the right direction. They missed the mark completely. It's disappointing, I'm sure, to, to do something like that, to miss the mark on a, a physics lab and, and to not receive a passing grade for, for that particular project. It is far more significant, though, if we miss the, the mark when it comes to genuine love. If we miss the mark on this task, we are failing to display the most fundamental characteristic of a believer. Last week, we started this new series, this series that I entitled Developing Genuine Love. We, we spent time looking at how, in the New Testament, love is set apart as the defining characteristic of a Christian. Our love for one another should be such that it arrests the attention of the world around us, that they, they see there is something unique about being a believer. 
We also noted last week that for this to occur, for us to have this kind of love, we must be able to discern biblical love from all the, the fake versions of love that are put out by our world. Biblical love is the real thing. As I said last week, we are going to use Romans 12, verses 9 through the end of the chapter, as our framework for this series. From verse 9 to the end, Paul essentially gives us a bullet list. Here's the things that make up genuine love. Here's what you need to have. Genuine love, biblical love, the, the, the real deal, this Christian love, is the only love, as we saw last week, that reflects a genuine Christ. Our world needs the genuine Christ. Our world doesn't need a, a fake Christ, a, a Christ who cannot save. Our world needs to know the genuine Christ and is a genuine love that reflects him. It's absolutely essential, therefore, that as believers, we develop genuine love. Last week, we considered the, the first place, that, or the first phrase, rather, verse 9, where, where Paul begins this topic. He, he says, love without hypocrisy. And we talked last week how if we use New American Standard where verbs are added to impact his idea, the idea is let love be without hypocrisy. In other words, love must be this real deal. This is the header for everything that follows. Genuine love, love without hypocrisy, looks like this. Paul is describing that it is essential that, one, we know what the real thing is. We know what genuine love is. And two, Paul, even more significantly, is concerned that we learn to display the real thing. This morning, we're going to look at the first thing that Paul lists as an essential characteristic of genuine love. The first thing that he gives us in the list. Yeah, I can practically guarantee that if we weren't looking ahead here, if we weren't looking at this, we would not expect this to be the first characteristic. The, the way I see it, what Paul is doing here is rather than going for the bullseye on the target that I set up for those students, rather than going for the bullseye, Paul is concerned that we hit the paper, that, that we just get on the right page. He's trying to ensure that we, we head in the right direction, I hope you do have your Bibles open or your app pulled up on your phone, however you're looking at it, so that you can look at Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. That, that's our list header, as, as I said. Then the very first item on the list, the, the rest of verse 9, where Paul starts, is with this. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. That's the first thing that Paul says is necessary for us to have genuine love. We must Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So let's start thinking about this idea that, that is so important here that Paul heads his list with this. What makes this bullet item so critical that this is where he will start? Well, the first thing I want us to observe is that genuine love requires a strong hatred of evil. A strong hatred of evil. That, that's my paraphrase here uh, of Paul's phrase, abhor what is evil. Paul uses the word abhor, and actually in the original word, the way he gives us is a very, very strong verb. And it's a verb that's only used this one time in the New Testament. It's not a familiar word. It's used one time. 
One scholar suggested that we maybe should translate as hate exceedingly. It's that strong idea of hatred. He's using a word that, that builds this idea of we should have an intense hatred. Let's stop right there and note how antithetical that idea alone is to, to the soft, squishy idea of love that our culture puts forth. Our society says that, that we ought not hate anything if we're practicing love. Rather, love is this all-embracing idea that, that whatever comes for, to it will be embraced. Open-armed acceptance of, of anything and everything. The, the only thing that, that our society says love should exclude from that embrace is that idea that something could be excluded. There, there's no room, no room for absolutes, but anything else we are to embrace. Yet Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that we are not even hitting the page if we don't hate certain things if we don't hate them with an intense hatred. There are things that, that must be excluded rather than accepted if we are going to have genuine love. So what must be excluded? Evil. That's the word he uses. We must abhor what is evil. We must hate in an exceedingly great fashion that which is evil. Now, as you might suggest, suspect that the word evil is, is a very general word. It's a rather general term, but it's a term that specifically refers to anything that is morally objectionable. For something to be evil, there has to be a moral component to it. Of course, in, by this point in Romans, Paul assumes that we understand that, that God alone has the right to define what is morally objectionable. Evil is that which is contrary to the moral standards of God. The moral standards that God has revealed. What God has said is wrong. I hope, again, you recognize there is a a vast difference here between what Paul is laying out in Romans 12 and and the attitude of our culture at large. Our our culture, and and frankly every culture that, that the world has ever known, attempts to define morality by public opinion. If the majority of the people, if, the, if we can get the, the, the bulk of society to accept this idea, then it's okay. Well, we're living right now in a seismic shift in our culture when it comes to defining what is morally objectionable and what's morally acceptable. We know that. There's a seismic shift going on. Our, our current culture, for example, now views as morally acceptable for two adults to engage in sexual activity outside of marriage as long as both adult, adults consent. That's the only requirement, that the adults consent. In fact, it, it doesn't matter if the adults are of the, the same or different genders as long as they consent. It, it doesn't even matter if... The two consenting adults have a firm view on what gender is, as long as they consent. All that matters is common consent. A generation ago, such ideas would have been unthinkable. Genuine love, however, is in no way dependent on on the shifting sands of cultural opinion. Genuine love, biblical love, 
is dependent on the eternal position of God who defines what is morally objectionable and what is morally acceptable. Contrary to the public opinion of the culture, God is the absolute arbiter of evil. He alone defines what is morally evil. And that God does based on his own character. The God who does not change, the God who is a holy God, has given us an entire book that reveals who he is, how he is, and those things that are contrary to that are morally evil. Again, look at the requirement. Paul says, abhor what is evil. He's calling us to have a strong hatred of evil. Too often, that's where we start to flounder. When when it comes to developing genuine love, we start to flounder right here with this very first command that says, abhor what is evil. Evil is fun. At least for a time, evil is fun. Evil is pleasurable for a while. Evil is appealing. It's attractive. It's enticing. It's popular. In the sin-broken world, with our sin-corrupted natures, we find evil attractive. There's a part of us that, that, that does not find evil abhorrent even as a believer. That, there's always been this struggle that we have as Christians. We have this inner attraction to evil. Now add to the fact that we find it attractive, add to that that we live in an era that, that values self-discipline far less than previous generations. God knew when he inspired the New Testament that as Christians we would always struggle with his attraction to evil. So he tells us, struggle against it, abhor it, self-discipline ourselves, discipline our minds, discipline our bodies, bring ourselves under self-discipline so that we will not give in to what our bodies are enticed by, evil. But we live in an era that Value self-discipline far less than, than previous generations. We're, we're surrounded by, by messages that encourage us to indulge our every whim. That they're sure of that, that we deserve whatever we desire. That this constant bombardment of our culture, it does impact us in our Christianity overall. We, we are impacted. So that last week, as I said, there, there's very little gap between professing Christians and non-Christians in, in categories such as divorce rates, obesity, alcoholism, gambling addictions, pornography, so forth. Things that the Bible says are morally wrong, and yet we find the same prevalence in Christianity, self-proclaimed Christians, as we do in the world at large. The bottom line is there is ample evidence in America that Christianity does not abhor what is evil. But how about us? Let's not just talk about Christianity in America. How about us in this room? Do we have a strong hatred of evil? I'm concerned about American Christianity, but I'm much more directly concerned about us. Do we abhor what is evil? 
Do we have a strong hatred of evil, even if it means that we are going to be unpopular? Even if it means that we must refuse to dabble in the things that would lead us to evil, because we abhor evil. Genuine love requires a strong hatred of evil. That's the first observation that that we can make here from what Paul writes. As he starts this list, as he heads out, what is genuine love? This is the first idea. A strong hatred of evil is required. And then he balances that with the second half of his statement. Not only are we to have a strong hatred for evil, genuine love requires a fervent grasping of the good. A fervent grasping of good. Paul writes, cling to what is good. It's impossible to shun something without grasping the opposite. We need to hold on to something. So Paul says, cling to what is good. We, we must fill our time with something. We must hold on to something. We must have our affections directed towards something. Paul says, direct them toward good. The, the word cling that Paul uses is a much more common word than the word abhor. I said abhor is used only one time in all of the New Testament. Cling is a much more common word. Frequently the word is used just for some sort of general relationship. When you form a relationship, an association of some kind. For example, in Acts chapter 5.13, it's a reference to, to people not associating with the apostles. They, they refused to cling to the apostles. They wouldn't associate with them because they feared the Jewish leaders. In, in Acts 8, 29, the, the words used for Philip when he was told to go join the Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot. He was to cling to the eunuch, go up into his chariot. That, that's the general type of association. It, it's common. The, the word can, however, be used in a stronger sense. It, it can be used in a stronger sense to refer to a tie that is of the closest sort. In, in Luke 10, verse 11, This word shows up describing the dust that that clings to the feet. When it was on their sandals and they needed to get it off, the dust clung. Well, we know it's not always easy to get that off, is it? Then in Matthew 19.5, we find the same word used to express the idea of the marriage relationship, transforming or translating God's idea for the perfect marriage that we find in Genesis 3, that a man should leave his father and mother and be joined. That's the same word. Be joined to his wife. Cling to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. A husband and wife are to cling to one another. It is the, the closest relationship. They are to cleave themselves together in this marriage covenant. The strong sense of grabbing one another and refusing to let go regardless of what comes along. That's the sense the word carries here in Romans. We are to fervently grasp what is good. Grasp it with a refusal to let go. So what is good? That's the question we would have to ask ourselves. We're supposed to grasp something called good. What is it? Well, quite simply, that that word is the opposite of of evil. It's a word that, again, always carries a moral component. It is that which is is morally admirable according to God, that which reflects the the character of God. Evil 
is morally objectionable, good is morally admirable. It's that which is morally excellent, aligning with the moral character of our God. Once again, we, we immediately go astray if we let our culture define what is good. Far, far too many times our culture has it completely switched. You know, it's upside down. The culture calls that which God calls evil, they call good, and what God calls good, they call evil. They get it backwards. We cannot let culture define it. We must go to God to determine what is and is not morally good. For example, our culture tells us it is good if we acquire more riches and more toys. Just on Friday, as I was driving into the office, I heard on the radio about a study that had been conducted. And in the study, they investigated what do rich people, and they didn't say what they categorized as rich, but wealthy people, what do wealthy people, rich people, have in common? And the study found three common characteristics, behaviors that the rich people had. One, they all had a primary source of income a good primary source of income. That, that was the first thing that they all had in common. Two, they all had some sort of a side gig. They, they worked on a secondary source of income as well that they used to add into their primary source of income. And then third, they all had real estate that they managed on top of it. Obviously, if, when they, they said when you put these three things together, two... Sources income, a primary, a secondary, and then real estate adding more in, they became, they were able to accumulate wealth. And the clear message that was being communicated from the radios, it was good to juggle all these things in your lives because it is good to be wealthy, and this is the path to riches. As I listened to that on the radio, I was thinking to myself, I can easily see how this kind of a life would lead to accumulating wealth. There's there, no trouble envisioning that. But I immediately thought also how impossible it is for a person to manage that kind of life and have any time left for laying up treasure in heaven. Certainly there, there will be accumulation of wealth on, on earth here, but the Bible tells us that here is a place where moth and rust destroys we are to lay up eternal wealth in heaven where, where moth and rust cannot touch it. That's what God says is good. There, there's nothing good about spending our lives accumulating wealth that will be destroyed. There's great good in, in serving God for that which is eternal. And one of the primary ways God calls us to serve him is by showing love to one another. Love that reflects a genuine Christ, using our lives to show love to each other. But that takes time. Time that will suck away from generating wealth. Yet, God says that is good. We should fervently grasp the opportunities to serve others, even, even if it means giving, us, giving up opportunities for, for more income. Because God says it's good. And there are a lot of things the Bible calls good. Paul just uses the gen, general term here that, that we are to cling to all of them. Everything the Bible says is good, cling to it, grasp it. Refuse to let go. 
We, we can't pick and choose. We are just simply cling to what is good. All of it. Genuine love requires this fervent grasping of good. That, that's the second thought here that, that Paul gives us in this leading idea under this list of, of genuine love. Love without hypocrisy, it begins with this. Genuine love requires a strong hatred of evil and a genuine love of, requires a fervent grasping of good. We need these two things together. I don't think these are the ideas that we would expect to begin a listing of genuine love. But they're what Paul starts with. Why? What is the lesson that that we need to comprehend? If we're going to have any chance of hitting the page when, when we shoot our efforts towards love and they bounce around through our life, will we hit the page that measures genuine love? What do we need to comprehend? Well, what we need to learn this morning, the, the, the place we need to start, the fundamental idea that we need to consider for genuine love is that genuine love is framed by act of godliness. Framed by act of godliness. Active godliness. That's what abhorring evil is. That's what clinging to good is. It's putting godliness into action. Paul starts here because love cannot be separated from a pursuit of godliness. Because genuine love is about seeking what is best for the object of our love. And the best is godliness. Take the evil side of the equation. Abhor what is evil. Take that side. Genuine love will hate evil whenever it touches the person loved. Now, evil might touch the person from within as sin temptations start welling up and, and the person yields to those sin. Evil can touch the person from within. And, of course, evil can touch the person from without. Others can sin against that person and, and others can sin in a way that impacts that person. Well, genuine love hates both sides of that. If the evil's from within or without, whenever evil touches the person that loved, it's hated. Genuine love hates such touching of evil because that does not conform to God. Act of godliness hates anything that's contrary to the character of God. Act of godliness moves us to hate evil when it touches the one we love. Now, we can flip that around on the good side of the equation, and and it works out the same. An act of godliness will rejoice to to see good working out in a fashion that touches the person we love. Paul starts here because unless we have act of godliness, unless it's working itself out in our life, we are prone to messing up the distinction between what we should hate and what we should love. We will swallow the confusion of good and evil that the world offers, and we will miss the page. Here's where I'm probably going to start stepping on toes this morning. But oh well, it happens. Sometimes it's even unavoidable because the problem is that, that what we want is to float between these two. Abhor evil, cling to good. We want to really float somewhere in between. Rather than an active love, 
We want an, or an act of godliness. Rather than an act of godliness, we want an apathetic godliness. An apathetic. Rather than abhorring evil, we're, we're content with a less vigorous pursuit of evil. Let's not hate it completely, but let's just not really actively pursue it. If a bit of evil drops into our lives, well, we, we might allow ourselves to enjoy it for a moment or two, as long as we don't pursue it. I'll give you an example I've been dealing with greatly in the last few weeks. Well, it's not too many weeks now, but since they put the, the road construction on Ryan Road, every time I'm sitting patiently in the lane, in the, the construction, waiting for the pinch point, and somebody zooms by for three blocks to try and move in right at the last moment when the barrels hit, I struggle with indulging evil just a little bit because that jerk is coming by. And rather than hating the anger that wells up within me, I want to give in to it. Just indulge it for a little while. I want to be apathetic in my godliness rather than active in my godliness. Similarly, we want apathetic godliness when it comes to more, what's morally good as well. On, on the other side of the equation, we don't want to be so far out where we're abhorring evil. We don't want to be so far out where we're clinging to what is good. We want to float in the middle because it's more fun. We, we're okay if we fall a little short of grasping what is good. It's much easier to, to, to memorize all the characters and the plot lines of a series of movies than it is to memorize scripture. I don't want to grasp that. That's hard work. I feel like if I pick any example, I, I'm likely causing problems because it will seem that I'm trying to get personal and, and really going after a particular individual that's falling short. We're all falling short of godliness. We're all content with the sort of godliness that's apathetic rather than active. We, we all like things that are good but not too difficult, not too controversial. For example, our, our world has been telling us for, for some time that, that it's our duty as parents to ensure that our children have plenty of opportunities to, to explore their potential. A, a good loving parent is one who will sign their child up for every sport and every activity they can to see where their child's potential really lies. I admit that Grace and I fell for that message when we had young children more times than I care to think about. So I know how potent that message is coming from our world. And I know that message is just as potent now as it was when our children were young. Because time and again, families are absent from church because there's conflicts with the activities that their children are engaged in. Yet I'm going to state directly that raising our children this way is not showing them genuine love. It's not. Regardless of what the world says. The, the picture the Bible gives of parenting is that we are to raise our children so that they love the Lord with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind. 
that they are to be ready, if necessary, to lay their lives down in service to their Lord. How are we possibly preparing our children for that level of love and devotion when we don't even ask them to put Christ ahead of sports? We're missing the boats. But, but parents are not the only ones missing the boat when it comes to active godliness. Most of us are. Most of us are missing it. We, we can go out to dinner any evening of the week with friends or family, but we can't come back Sunday evening to church. That's too inconvenient. We can get up early, do whatever we want on Saturday, but, but we can't rearrange our schedule to join a church work day, even though it's one of the greatest fellowship times we can have. And now before I go on making you all too mad, I'll, I'll pick on myself for a little bit. I'm not trying to stumble on, on your particular indulgence. We all have them. I can spend an evening reading a, a mystery novel, but I don't want to spend that same evening reading a theological book. I can vegetate in front of the TV all night long, but I don't want to take time to meditate on a verse for any amount of time. My goal this morning is not to rant and rave. Nor is my goal to to simply get us all mad at one another or maybe mad at me. That's never my goal, but that, that can happen. It's not my goal to lay a guilt trip on us either. My goal is to get us to recognize that we may be failing to f- when it comes to godliness. And we may be failing so much that we are not even beginning to hit the page of genuine love. We may have gotten so comfortable with the, the false idea that the devil has, has promoted that we are confused what it means to hate evil and to grasp good. So we've landed in the middle just wanting to have a little bit of both in an apathetic godliness. We may be failing and not even realizing it unless we force ourselves to take a hard look at our lives. Throughout our lives, different, actually throughout our lifespans now for all of us here, Christianity that has been pushed in our country has largely been a lazy, easy Christianity. None of us have grown up, by and large, with a Christianity that's anything other than that. Yes, there are a few weird examples out there. There's the Jimmy Elliots of the world in every generation, but, but the Christianity being pushed by our country, the Christianity that's probably been pushed by many of our parents, has largely been a lazy, easy Christianity. The result is that active godliness has been replaced by apathetic godliness. Coming back to our topic, apathetic godliness cannot exercise genuine love. And apathetic godliness does not care if evil touches someone we love, at least not enough to do battle against it. And apathetic godliness does not care as long as the evil is not too blatant, not causing any immediate difficulties. If that case, in that case, it can just be ignored. Much of the time, even if it is causing difficulties, an apathetic godliness 
is not going to be addressed as long as those difficulties do not affect us personally. We, we see sinful choices destroying the lives of, of others, ones that we're told by God to love one another, love one another, it's our Christian duty. We see sin destroying them, but we simply look the other way. That is not love. An apathetic godliness fails to cling to the good because even if it can identify the good, it's hard work to cling to it. You feel like you're dangling from a cliff and your fingers get tired. It's hard work to cling, to fervently grasp. We much prefer to just go with the flow, let gravity take us where it wants, indulging ourselves in the present than to cling to what is good. Yet what are the results? What are the results? What are the real-world results of this kind of Christianity? There are more broken homes than we can count. There are more wayward children than any of us want to admit. Generations now that, that want nothing to do with the church, because why would they? The church clearly was not able to produce an act of godliness in their parents. Why should they have any part in it? Friends, we, we, we cannot change the past. We've all made far more mistakes than we would ever want to admit. We have failed in countless ways. We, we cannot change the past, but we can commit to the present and the future going forward. We can commit to having genuine love as we go forward. And genuine love must begin with active godliness. Active godliness. Genuine love must abhor what is evil and cling to what is good in our lives and in the lives of those around us, the lives that we're called to love. Genuine love is framed with active godliness. It's framed there. Again, much like that one physics team where when the, the laser was put down, their beam went the wrong direction. I believe that many of us have missed the page completely when it comes to active godliness. We miss the page of genuine love because our act of godliness is nowhere to be found, so it sent our attempts at love somewhere else. And we don't even come close to genuine love. I believe before we can move any further in the list, we've got to deal with the beginning. Because as we go down, I think we're going to find things in this list as, as we go forward, things that we're actually doing. But if we've skipped over active godliness to get there, then whatever we're doing, they're not part of genuine love. We've missed the fundamental component, the, the foundational where we need to begin, the, the one that, that deals with our own heart. It doesn't matter what external things we're doing for others if our own heart is not pursuing active godliness and letting that be the, the impetus behind are acts of love. The one that must come first for our actions to produce act or genuine love is active godliness. Genuine love is framed by active godliness. A moment ago I, I said we, we cannot change the past, but we can commit ourselves to genuine love as we go forward. 
And that change begins with repentance. It begins with repenting for our past failures, confessing that we have failed. I'm going to end this sermon differently this morning from the way I normally end. I'm going to give us time to spend in prayer. I'm going to let us spend in prayer. And I urge you to spend time in prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to, to examine your heart and to show you where are you failing to abhor evil, to have an exceeding hatred, a strong hatred towards evil, the, the hatred that you ought to have. Where are you failing? Ask the Holy Spirit to show you where you are not grasping what is good, not clinging to it. Change begins with repentance. I've asked Jerry if he would come to the piano. I'm going to have him pray while we, or play while we spend time in prayer. You, you can pray in your pew, or if you want, I invite you to come to the front and pray up, up here on the front and these steps. Sometimes, just moving forward, making a, a tangible, visible step, like leaving your pew, helps cement your repentance in your mind. It, it makes it visible before others that you're striving to make a change. And because we love one another, we will encourage one another in that change. It's up to you how you want to pray, but I encourage you to pray. We must begin with act of godliness. My prayer is that we will be a church that that truly displays genuine love for Christ. And as we do that, we will show the world around us a genuine Christ. But we cannot do that until there's a hatred of evil and grasping of good in our own lives. Genuine love is framed by active godliness. Let's pray.